morning. It's very good to be with you again. Um, my name is Gavin Breeden. I'm the RUF campus minister at Tennessee Tech. And I've been here a number of, this is my fourth year in that, in that role and beginning of my fourth year. And I've been here a number of times over the last few years. So perhaps um, my face looks familiar, maybe it doesn't. Um, but either way, I'm glad to be here, glad to be with y'all. Um, looking forward to, um, to worshiping, continuing to worship this morning, hearing from the Lord, from his word together. Uh, if you have a Bible, please open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> uh, 1 Timothy, as you may know, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written to Timothy, who was a young pastor, who was sort of his son in the faith. And Timothy was a pastor in a town, a city called Ephesus. And in this letter, Paul is writing for, for several reasons, to encourage Timothy, but also there's a lot of time Paul devotes to trying to warn Timothy about the false teaching that is going around Ephesus, about false teachers who are in Ephesus, who are spreading a false gospel. And in the midst of this warning, Paul takes a moment to really reflect on his own conversion, his own call to ministry in a way. Um, and, and Paul's doing that sort of in contrast to these false, this false gospel. A false gospel doesn't transform anybody. A false gospel doesn't change people, right? It doesn't turn sinners into saints. But Paul is telling us that is exactly what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ does. Uh, that's what Jesus is in the business of doing, saving sinners and transforming their lives. So if you have a Bible, please look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. This is God's word. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an, example to the, as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him again and ask him for his help this morning. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come together this, on this rainy Sunday morning um, and we ask to be warmed by your word. We ask that the truth of your gospel, the truth of your word, uh, would be in our bones, that it would light a fire within us, a fire of doxology, a fire of, to worship you, but also a fire to love, to love you, to love our neighbors, to love one another, to love this community. Lord, we pray that as we come to this passage that you would teach us, that you would help us, help us to understand it. We pray you would write your eternal truths on our hearts and that we would see Jesus this morning. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been coming here long enough now that I feel like I can, you know, say this to you without fear, I hope, but I want to confess something to you this morning. I enjoy musicals, okay? I said it. I hope you don't look at me any differently now. I hope this is not my last invitation to be here. I hope you don't turn, tune out the rest of the, the sermon, um, but I do. I enjoy Singing in the Rain, Fiddler on the Roof, The Sound of Music. These are a few of my favorite things. Uh, <laughs> But it took me a while. It took me a while to appreciate uh, musicals 
Because for me, one of the biggest obstacles to kind of getting into a musical, learning to appreciate it, to enjoy it, was that people sort of in the middle of conversation, in the middle of everyday life, would sort of would break out into song. And that just seems so unbelievable. That just seems so strange that, you know, to see two street gangs uh, in West Side Story resolve their problems through singing and dancing, um, <clears throat> that's just not how, it's happened, how it happens in everyday life. But breaking into song uh, sort of unexpectedly is exactly what we see the Apostle Paul doing in this letter to Timothy. He's writing this letter. He's warning Paul, about, excuse me, warning Timothy about false teaching and false teachers who are running around Ephesus. And he's reflecting on his own conversion. And then in verse 17, he just breaks out into song. He breaks out into praise to God. And it really gives the impression that Paul lived a life that was marked by praise, that, that he lived a life that we might call a life of doxology. And here's the question that I want us to sort of ponder this morning. I want, the question I want you to ask yourself, the question for myself as well, is do I live a life of doxology? Do I live a life that is marked by praise? And I'm not suggesting, right, that we should break out into song, you know, when you're eating lunch in Chick-fil-A or something like that, but, but I'm suggesting a life in which our hearts are continuously pointed, directed towards Jesus in worship, in gratitude, in thanksgiving, in praise. Do we have hearts and minds that regularly turn to God in praise? Does worshiping with God's people feel like a delight or does it feel like a chore? So this morning, we're going to use this passage almost as a case study. What is it that, what's sort of Paul's secret here? What is it that Paul has that we, that we need, that we need to get, get a hold of? What is it that causes him to break out into song in the middle of writing a letter? Where does this joyful praise come from? So just two points this morning regarding Paul's doxology. First, we'll see that doxology is fueled by commission. And second, we'll see doxology is fueled by conversion. So first of all, doxology is fueled by commission. This will be a, a shorter point. We'll spend most of our time this morning on the second point. But we see this in verse 12. Paul has be, begins this section by expressing his thanks to Jesus. Right? And he lists three things specifically in verse 12 that he's thankful for. He's thankful that Jesus has given him strength. He's thankful that Jesus has judged him faithful and that Jesus has appointed him to his service. And all of these things are in reference to Paul's commission, to his his specific duty, his role as an apostle and a missionary. And Paul seems absolutely amazed that someone like him has been called into the service of the Lord Jesus to serve in this way. And as we see throughout this passage, <clears throat> um, his amazement has a lot to do with what he was like before his conversion, who he was before he became a Christian. And as he tells us in verse 13, he says he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent. Paul had rejected Jesus and Christianity. He had sought to arrest and kill Christians. He himself was as violently opposed to the cause of Jesus as anybody could be. But despite all of that, Jesus calls Paul to be his servant. And not only that, he calls him to be his apostle. He calls him to be a missionary for the sake of Christ's kingdom. And it's almost as if Paul is pinching himself here. I can't believe I get to be a servant to Jesus. He's shocked that, that such a sinner as himself gets to be an apostle and a missionary for Jesus. It fills him with gratitude. And it's this gratitude that is that in verse 12 that we see, that's the beginning of what is leading him to this doxology in verse 17. It's just like one of those, just like a character in a musical. 
right? They're so overcome with emotion that they can't help but to sing. And that's the impression that we get as we start to read this passage, that Paul becomes so, there's sort of an intensity, a building here, that Paul becomes so overwhelmed with it that he can't help but to break out into song. So what do we learn from this? I mean, none of us in this room is, a, is an apostle um, like him, like Paul. Most of us here aren't called to vocational ministry. Uh, this is not, is this type of gratitude that we see in this passage, is this only reserved for those whose day job it is to, um, to serve Jesus, right, as part of their day job? People like uh, me, like an RUF campus minister, like a pastor, uh, like a missionary. Is this, type of, is this type of joy only reserved for people in that situation? Absolutely not. Because each Christian, each person who's a follower of Jesus has been equipped and commissioned by Jesus. Each of us has a calling to be his ambassador, to be his servant in this world, in this community, in this church. So, and consider also, consider the analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about the church, the people of God, as a human body, right? And Jesus himself is the head of the body. He's in control. He's the leader. He's telling the body what to do. The body parts are the ones who are doing the work, who are following the head's leading, doing what the head tells them to do. If you are in Christ, you have gifts. You have been gifted. You have a role. You have a function in the body of Christ. You have been commissioned to serve Jesus, both in, in, his, uh, in this church and in your community. Uh, you've been sent out. And you have a role that, that no one else can fill. Right? There's a role that he has made just for you to fill in his kingdom. And so perhaps one of the reasons that our Christian life grows stagnant, one of the reasons we feel our, our praise sort of grow cold and stale is because our, 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 and because our, and our zeal for worship sometimes grows cold in our hearts is because maybe it's because we aren't using our gifts. Maybe it's because we aren't serving. We aren't, we aren't serving Jesus in the church. We're not serving Jesus in our community that we don't get the opportunity to experience the, what Paul, this, the awe that Paul experiences in this passage, sort of this, this disbelief that Jesus could use someone even like him. We don't get to share in that awe. We don't get to share in that shock because we aren't allowing ourselves to be used. Or perhaps we've come to view service as a burden and not a blessing, as something we dread when it's our turn to share, to share some of the load. But for Paul, the fact that he's a servant of Jesus fills him with humility. It fills him with gratitude. And these, these are the things that are starting to fuel this doxology that's going to come in verse 17. These are fueling his worship. So that's what we see in verse 12 there, that his commission is fueling his worship. It's fueling his doxology. But for the most of this passage, verses 13 through 16, we see Paul, and our second point this morning, Paul reflecting on his conversion. Paul reflecting on his salvation, on how Jesus has changed and transformed him. And that's, that's where we start to see really this escalation happening in this passage as Paul is reflecting on how Jesus has transformed him, how Jesus has saved him. And as we look through this passage, we really notice two things about Paul's conversion. First, we see Paul tells us a lot about the depth of his sin, but Paul also tells us about the abundance of grace that's found only in Jesus. And so let's consider those two, those two things this morning. First, the depth of his sin. We've already seen in verse 13 how Paul describes himself before he met Jesus. He says he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, he was an insolent opponent, right? Um, Paul goes to great lengths here to reflect on his condition, on his life before he was a Christian. He's very honest with us, right? In the book of Acts, 
bears this out. We see in the book of Acts just how bad it was. In, in Acts chapter 9, we're told that, that he, was got, he went by Saul then, but Saul was breathing murder against Christians, against the church. He was breathing threats and murder against the church. That's how, that's how much of an opponent he was to Christ and the church. But Paul goes on to highlight the depth of his sin again as he mentions this trustworthy saying in verse 15. And this really is sort of the key to the passage. Paul tells us here that this saying is trustworthy, right? It's worthy of full acceptance. It's reliable. It's proven. It's not going to steer you the wrong way. Um, we shouldn't have any doubts or hesitation about accepting this trustworthy saying he's telling us. And what is the trustworthy saying? It's this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think if we were, try, if we were to try and summarize the gospel into one sentence, I don't think we could do much better than this right here. This sentence right here. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We were helpless and hopeless. We couldn't save ourselves, so Jesus had to come. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to make all things new. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to reverse the curse on human beings and on this creation. But notice the phrase that Paul tacks on to the end of this just trustworthy saying. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and Paul says, and I'm the very worst one. I'm number one. I'm the chief of sinners, other translations say. Now, we might be tempted to ask here, is Paul, is he being sincere, or is this, is this an example of false modesty or something like that? Does he really believe himself to be the foremost sinner? Well, we've already considered his life apart from Christ, right? We've already considered the, the sort of the severity with which he attacked the Christians and the church and how he relentlessly pursued them before his conversion on the Damascus Road. But notice that Paul doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners, I was the foremost sinner, but I am the foremost. Why would he say that? Paul, he's no longer doing the things he used to do. He's no longer a persecutor of Christians. He's no longer a blasphemer against a holy God. We could understand if he said, perhaps, I was the worst sinner ever, but no, he says, I am. Paul, me, the missionary, I am the foremost sinner. I am the chief of sinners. What we see here is that Paul recognizes the depth of his own sin. He, st he still struggles. He knows that he has not outgrown his need for Jesus. Paul's not saying, you know, I used to be a really messed up guy, and then I met Jesus, and now my life is fine. Now it's all good from here on out, right? He's, no, Paul says, I am the foremost sinner. I still desperately need Jesus as my Savior each and every minute. Paul the missionary, Paul the New Testament writer, Paul the apostle is still utterly dependent on the Lord Jesus. And, you know, this should be true of all of us. You may have not persecuted the church before you were a Christian, uh, but you are well acquainted, you should be well acquainted with how deep sin goes in your own heart. You are more familiar with your own sin than with anybody else's. There's a sense in which we can all honestly say, I am the foremost sinner because I've been witness to, to more sin from me than from anybody else. Because I have witnessed every hateful thought that I've ever had, right? Every harsh word that I've spoken every pang of envy, every covetous, covetous desire that has come into my heart, every moment of puffed-up pride, every moment of self-pity, 
Every time I've neglected God, every time I've propped up idols in my heart, every time I've, I've uh, gone through bouts of selfishness, every time I have loved myself more than I loved God, every time I've ignored the needs of my neighbor, I know every time I've done those things and, and so much more. And yet I often overlook those things in my own life and pay more attention to the sins of the people around me, the sins of the people out there, rather than paying attention with what's going on in here. So it should be true of all of us to say, I'm the worst sinner that I know. Because I've seen how deep it goes in my heart. I've seen how deep it goes in my thoughts, in my words, in my deeds. But Paul even goes on in verse 16 to tell us that he received mercy. The reason he received mercy was because he was such a terrible sinner that Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example for other people who would believe. Paul is saying here, if, if I can receive mercy, anyone can receive mercy. That's the kind of guy I am. He's presenting himself here as the poster child of the transforming power of the gospel. And that's why he such, goes to such great lengths as he's writing these things to Timothy. Because he's saying, look, the true gospel has the power to transform blaspheming, persecuting, violent opponents to Jesus into servants of Christ. A false, a false gospel does not do that. A false gospel cannot do that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul has made quite a, quite a case here for the depths of his own sinfulness. And so right now, maybe it's hard to see, wow, where does the praise come from? How does he get to a, the praise in verse 17? Because thinking about how messed up of a person I am, how broken of a sinner I am, doesn't really make me want to sing. It makes me depressed. You know, where does the joyful song come from uh, if Paul's thinking about these things? But maybe that's where we start to miss out on the life of doxology. Because we, maybe the reason that Paul has a song of praise on his lips is because he's willing to really be honest about himself. He's willing to really look into his heart and see what's actually there. He's willing to talk about his sin, to think about his sin, when we don't really like to do that. I know I don't like to do that. It's often easier for us as Christians to focus on, to focus on other people's sin, to ignore our own, to, to judge other folks and to self-righteously look down on them while, also, while kind of glossing over our sins, sort of excusing our sins, blaming our sins on other people, blaming them on our circumstances, or just pretend they don't exist. But what we're seeing here is that it is necessary, that if we're going to sing a doxology like Paul, we have to think about, we have to reflect on our sin. We have to be honest about it. Because if we miss this, if we fail to take our sin seriously, to see how deep it really goes in us, then, then the next part of the gospel isn't going to be sweet to us. It's not going to make much sense to us. It's not going to be meaningful to us. Um, I remember a few years ago, I was in seminary uh, when the TV show Lost was kind of coming to its conclusion uh, the last couple seasons. And um, that was one of the most fun shows, I think, ever to watch sort of week to week. And I know I worked in the admissions office at RTS Charlotte where I went to seminary. And every week, you know, like Tuesday morning or whatever it was after the show aired, we would all come in and we had our theories, you know, like, what, what are all these mysteries? What's, what's all, let's explain this. And we would be talking about it at seminary. And maybe you've had this before, too. There's been a show or a book series that you're really into, and you just love to discuss it and sort of trade your stories and your theories. What's going to happen next? And occasionally, a new person would kind of come to the conversation and, like, hear us talking about Lost, and they would say, oh, that sounds pretty interesting. I think I'm going to tune in next week. 
And we would say, no, you, you can't. You've got to go back. You've got to go buy the DVDs. You know, you gotta get, you got to get caught up. You can't start in season five. That's ridiculous. Are you crazy? Uh, because if you start in season five, none of this, other, none of, none of this stuff's going to make sense to you. I mean, it didn't make much sense anyway, but it's really not going to make much sense to you. You're going to be lost, right? Literally, you're going to be lost. Like the, 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 um, you know, the, the revelations, the, the answers or whatever is not going to be meaningful to you because you don't have the background that's necessary. Uh, and, and so we, I remember having those sort of conversations and telling people you have to start at the beginning or the payoff is not going to mean anything to you. And it's the same case here. If we really don't understand our sin problem, if we really don't understand how hopeless we are apart from Jesus, how much we need him, then the gospel is not going to seem like good news to us. It's not going to dazzle us. It's not going to delight us. We have to understand who we are. We have to understand the depths of our sin problem, how hopeless our condition truly is apart from Jesus before we can really appreciate, before we can taste the sweetness of the gospel, before we can really savor that and and hear it as good news. So thinking about and confessing and repenting of our sin will actually fuel our worship, as strange as that may sound, but only only if our sins have been washed in the blood of Jesus. And that leads us to the second part of this uh, of Paul's sort of summary of his conversion here. We've seen the depths of his sin, and now he points us to the abundance of grace that's found in Jesus. Look at verse 13 again. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, But I received mercy. Paul almost can't believe it. God had mercy on me. He didn't give me the punishment that I deserved. He had mercy on me. He spared me. And Paul goes on to say, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Not only did God have mercy on me, his grace overflowed for me. An abundance, more than was necessary, more than was needed. That's what he gave to me. Paul is saying, I was pardoned for my sins, right? But it's more than that. I was forgiven, but it was more than that. He's saying he received far more than he deserved. He was adopted. He was made a son. He was made a servant to Jesus. This man who was a blasphemer, who was a persecutor of God's people, who was a violent opponent, God loved him. God saved him. God made him his own child. No longer an enemy, but a child of the king. This is where Paul's doxology comes from. This is where his praise comes from. This is what's driving and motivating it, that Jesus came to save sinners, even the worst sinners, even Paul. And maybe you're sitting here thinking this morning, you know, I can see why Paul is breaking into praise because that's a great story, right? From going from a persecutor, a blasphemer to a missionary, that's amazing. But maybe you look at your own life and you say, my testimony, my life, my conversion, it's not that good. My story's not that good. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in the church you were converted as a kid. You weren't saved from a life of persecuting Christians. But we're not all going to have a story like Paul's, right? He even tells us that in verse 16, that he has this, one of the reasons that he was saved is so he can be an example of the, the transforming power of the gospel, an example to us and to others. But just hearing Paul's story should be encouraging to us because we serve a God who takes persecutors and turns them into missionaries. We serve a Savior who can take a fierce enemy and turn him into a beloved son. But it's also important not to sell your own testimony 
short. I love that you guys are, are starting to put testimonies in your worship service. That's wonderful. Um, because you may have not have been persecuting the church, but you are still sinning against a holy God. You were on a path headed for destruction. You were a slave to sin, and there was nothing you could do to fix yourself. There was nothing you could do to improve yourself, to improve your estate, to, to improve yourself in God's eyes. But you received mercy. The grace of the Lord overflowed for you in the person and the work of Jesus. You are being transformed. You have a story to tell of that transformation. You have a story to tell of the work of Jesus in your life. God is at work in you, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He promises to do that. This is the good news that is driving and motivating Paul's doxology. And this is what can drive us to live a life of doxology as well. So why do we struggle with it? Why do we struggle to live a life of doxology? Why do we struggle to live a life of praise? It's not that the good news isn't good enough, right? The good news is good. But perhaps it's the same problem that the church in Ephesus struggled with in Revelation 2. We've forgotten our first love. We've forgotten how sweet the love of Jesus has been in our lives. I've been reading a book lately, um, a book called The Imperfect Pastor by Zach Eswine. And I'm going to read a quote, and this is written to pastors, but I think it still would be helpful whether you're in ministry or not. I think it's really helpful. He's talking about, remember how it was, he's talking to pastors, but remember how it was, it felt in your life, your relationship with Jesus felt before you got into ministry, okay? Here's what he writes. He says, do you remember what it was like before you desired vocational ministry? You had no training, you were unknown in the world, and Jesus was lovely to you. He had saved you. He had communicated his love to you. He was all treasure, true, pleasurable, satisfying, and altogether beautiful. He was your portion. He was your desire. Do you remember what it was like when you first became a Christian? How sweet Jesus seemed to you. How you couldn't believe that you were saved, that you had received mercy. How real and fresh his grace felt in your life. It was, it was amazing. It was life-changing. But it can be easy to forget, right? We are forgetful people. If you look through the Old Testament again and again and again, what God is saying to his people in the Old Testament is remember. Remember what I did for you. Remember what I did for your ancestors. Remember the faithfulness that I've shown you. Remember how I saved you. And he's telling us the same thing. Paul's secret to living a life of doxology was not to let himself forget it, to remind himself, to tell the story of how Jesus saved him over and over again, to tell that story again and again, to tell who he used to be, to tell how he met Jesus, to tell who he became. If you are in Christ, you have a story to tell just like that. If your, life is, if your spiritual life is stagnant, if praising God feels like a chore in your life, it's possible you've forgotten either the depths of your sin or you've forgotten the abundance of grace that you have found in Jesus. These things, along with Paul's sort of his awe that he would be called to be a servant of Jesus and servant to his kingdom, these are what fuels Paul's doxology. This is the good news which can begin to revive our cold and bored hearts. And the good news for us is that the same Christ who came into the world to save sinners... The same Christ who, who met Paul on the Damascus Road, 
The same Christ who transforms enemies into servants. The same Christ who overflows with love and grace to sinners. The same Christ who is still in the business of saving sinners like you and me. This is the Christ we gather to worship each Lord's Day. This is the Christ we are gathered to worship this morning. Let us lift our hearts and our voices to him in praise. Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so easy for us to forget. We, we confess we are a forgetful people. We forget who we were. We forget who we are. We forget what you have done for us. We forget the grace and mercy we've received in Jesus. Lord, help us to remember. Help us to, to tell our story of your transforming grace. Help us to tell that story regularly, to tell it to ourselves, to tell it to our neighbor, to remind ourselves how you have changed us, how you are changing us. And Lord, let that fuel our praise. Let that fuel our doxology. We ask things in Jesus' name. Amen.